Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Safe House Travel Diary. I'm your host, Suha. Today's episode takes place on my last day in Beirut. I was feeling dejected and in over my head and worried about Medina, who hadn't left our hotel room since arriving. So I took her for a walk the morning of my last day and met up with someone whose life exemplifies hope. I spent the day with Saleh on his motorcycle, darting around Beirut, listening to music on his portable speaker, and witnessing lessons about despair, resilience, uncertainty, and hope. This is episode six, Hope. Give it a clap. Okay. Welcome to The Safe House, a diary of my global exploration of hip-hop in misunderstood places. Hi, my name is Suha. I'm a mama, Lebanese immigrant, and most of all, I'm curious. I'm traveling around the world meeting hip-hop artists in their safe houses to talk about the experiences that shape their music. Welcome to Season 1, Three Nights in Beirut. Suha, you can't believe it. How fun was it? Like... Never ever in my whole life had that much fun, you know. It will never like happen again like that much. You know, like this is my best rapper at the moment. So this is a voice memo from Saleh. He actually sent it to me last week on July After those three nights in Beirut together, Saleh and I became friends, and we stay in touch through voice memos mostly. Just last week, he went to a concert in Beirut by one of the sickest rappers in the game right now, from Palestine, Shabishdid. And Saleh does not suffer fools when it comes to hip-hop. And he's a big fan of Shabishdid. And although I wish I could have been there to see Shabishdid live and see Saleh just have the time of his life, I always find myself smiling big when listening to his voice memos. And I wonder if others smile when they listen to him talk too. On that second night in Beirut back in September 2022, Saleh and I sat on the edge of a cliff with Beirut behind us and the Mediterranean Sea in front of us. Saleh already started feeling more like a sidekick than a driver at that point. But that night at Manara, we became friends. The lights that illuminate Sakhret al-Roshe, Pigeon Rock, were on. I'm told that's not always the case these days. And as I watched the rock glow above the dark and uneasy water, Saleh was telling me all about Nebi Yusuf, Prophet Joseph, the abandoned boy who escaped the dark and lonely well, faced countless setbacks, and went on to free his people. And then he talked more about Yarmouk. Yarmouk was once one of the biggest Palestinian refugee camps in the world. Growing from an improvised camp in 1957, 
to a city of 150,000 Palestinian refugees. And as Yarmouk was dragged into the Syrian civil war, it became the battleground for fighting between state and opposition forces. The camp was eventually besieged by ISIS, and Saleh's school was bombed at the beginning of his seventh grade year, killing all 250 children and staff inside. At one point, Saleh's mom couldn't get past the perimeter surrounding the camp while returning home from an urgent errand. And he was left there for two years with his uncle and older brother, surviving off weeds boiled in water from the local river, a river contaminated with dead bodies. At the school, mm -hmm. at the first month, and then they bombed it. And then a lot of kids, like, kids died. Like, they died. That's when you said your school was bombed and, like, 250 kids died. Yeah, yeah. He said if you ever want to understand Yarmouk, just Google it and look at the image results. You'll see what tens of thousands of suffering faces on an 11 kilometer long road lined by destroyed buildings looks like. That's, that's when, when the people went out. So imagine how many people they were. Like, look, look, there's, there's no... Like, this street is 11 kilometers, just like that. When Saleh finally escaped Yarmouk, he stayed in the hospital for two weeks in and out of consciousness, malnourished and sick from the years of eating trash and weeds boiled in water that tasted like death. You know, I don't want to say this. I would have said before, like, how much further could it fall? But I just remember Saleh's stories, and there's a long way down still. The next morning, when Medina woke me up, we stayed in bed together for a long time. It was our last day in Beirut. The weight of everything I was discovering about life in the new Lebanon was so heavy. So I sent a message to someone I'd been meaning to meet. Are you free for 20-minute coffee and a conversation about hope? That's the message I sent to Bilal Ghalib, a local NGO worker who's been implementing entrepreneurship programs in cities and refugee camps across the Middle East for nearly two decades. I never met Bilal in person, but I was introduced to him by a friend who went to college with him. And it was Bilal who introduced me to Saleh. Connected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is basically like backstory behind how you got connected with Saleh. Thank you so much for recommending him to yeah. me. That guy has um, a dream. I'm yeah. glad that you're with him, okay. especially when you're yeah. going to Borsh. You so, need an inside. You met him in Borsh. In Borsh. In the Nawaya Network. So that's where I met Ahmed Fahim and Saleh. I was their teacher, essentially. I was teaching like design thinking and. Uh, Bilal taught entrepreneurship classes in Borsh al Barajne. That's where Saleh learned business skills and applied for funding to launch the co-living space that he runs now. It caters to travelers of all kinds who need a place to crash and maybe a fixer. And now he runs it 100% independently of any institutional support. Although I asked for 20 minutes, Bilal and I sat and talked for an hour with Medina, a very loud barista making lattes and Arabic coffee, 
and music by Feruz playing in the background. And then I just wound up in Burj. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I wound up meeting Saleh. I haven't been in Lebanon since 2015. Being here now and, and seeing how it is. And you feel guilt? I feel powerless in the face of all of it. You know, and I just, yeah. I really just want to hear your thoughts about hope. And then if there's a connection there, I asked Bilal to meet because I was curious about the spark that fuels hope. I imagine for everyone it's different, but in order to do the kind of work that Bilal does, he must have some very specific thoughts about hope that I was curious about. And for me, I can't live without a dream. There's always like a little tendril, you know, of green growing out of the cracks in the sidewalk. Like, if I don't have hope, to be honest, like, I get pretty low and pretty heavy. You know, I, one day I was looking out at a beautiful sunset and I was feeling like, wow, this is so lovely. And then I had some of the climate collapse conversation in my mind, thinking about the environment and all these beautiful trees. It was in a pretty precarious place in southern Spain. It's dry and it's going to become drier. And so I was seeing all these trees, and then I was like predicting the future, basically, and feeling sadness. I really don't know what will happen. I don't have control stopping climate change. I don't have control like in any of these big things. But I can have hope in myself, living a beautiful life, living my values. You know that idea that God is beautiful, he loves that which is beautiful? That's sort of my, my guide, because that's... A kind of hope that's exciting and scary and in my agency. It's in, in, in a way that I have something to do about it. And I struggle with it because I see myself... Bilal said he couldn't live without a dream, and dreaming requires hope. Inspired by the spirit of divine beauty, he has his hope in what he can control, his own actions. And if they reflect beauty, a characteristic beloved by God, then Bilal knows that despite the outcome, he tried his best. Red. <laughs> I swear. I link back with Saul Hanroro in the hotel. It would be our last meeting like this. It was my last day in Beirut. I was flying out in 18 hours. I had two interviews planned, but both interviews were pushed to later in the day. So Saleh and I had some free time. I don't remember what he said exactly. It was some iteration of, let's go for a drive. I want to show you the most gangster shit you'll see in Lebanon or something to that effect. So we set out for the Sabra and Shatila neighborhood home to another one of Lebanon's Palestinian refugee camps. The only time I'd ever been in a refugee camp was that night with Saleh on night one. What I'm seeing now on the back of Saleh's motorcycle sits in stark contrast to those dark and narrow alleys under the canopy of wires. As Saleh and I rode down the main road of Sabra and Shatila, I thought about what Bilal said about hope about the tendrils sprouting from the concrete. We turned down the music playing from our portable speaker and drove through. There were dozens of produce stalls and carts lined up just off the main commercial section, surrounded by regular neighborhood things like cell phone shops and car repair garages, 
I even saw someone selling balloons on the street. Looking at this, I thought about the event that put the name Sabran Shatila in the history books, the Sabran Shatila Massacre of 1982. The massacre was carried out by the militia of a right-wing Lebanese party, while the Israeli Defense Forces had the area surrounded. The militia had been ordered by the IDF to clear fighters out of Sabran Shatila, and they went door-to-door -door slaughtering civilians, roughly 2,000 to 3,500 Palestinian refugees over the course of two days. Saleh slowed the motorcycle to a halt and parked under a tree. I was coordinating messages with Nuj and Lipos, two hip-hop artists who I was interviewing later on, so I didn't realize that we were at a cemetery until I followed Saleh in. Saleh went to a shady corner of the cemetery. He stood at the foot of a grave. And behind the grave was a wall covered in vines and a banner with the deceased's photo on it, a middle-aged man wearing a Palestinian kufiya. Saleh told me his name, Abu Asim. Saleh spent a lot of time with him in those early days in Beirut after escaping Yarmouk. This was a few years before Saleh met Bilal. I don't know how to label Abu Wasim. I'm sure there's a dozen euphemisms to describe him. Political faction representative, operative, militant. All I can say about him is what Saleh told me, that he gave his life to keeping drugs off the streets of his neighborhood, and that his violent death at the end of a violent life was considered a martyrdom. Saleh's eyes filled with tears as he stood at the foot of the grave, telling me about how much he used to love and respect Abu Wasim, that he was a mentor to a lot of the other neighborhood boys at the time. Boys like Saleh, ages 11, 12. He said that Abu Wasim was always surrounded by kids and that some of the older ones worked as security for him. He said, listen, these guys, they might sound like kids, but if you're hanging around someone like Abu Wasim, how do you think these guys are gonna end up by the time they're 19? These young men, they can crush rocks with their teeth. In this song, the 20-year-old rapper Nuj talks about growing up surrounded by violence. The song says, we took guns apart as kids. The only thing we know about childhood is that we didn't have one. These streets are heaven for devils. I stood there without a word listening to Saleh talk about his time with Abu Wasim.
غارم في السلاح ما عرفناش من الطفولة لأنه من أولاد تحت عيون في هلاك الله في كل بس تشتاح تخلق عندك دير حلاك Ending with, he's the most honorable and honest person I've ever met in Beirut. And he's buried here because he died a martyr, just like everyone else in this cemetery. I said, wait, everyone here is a martyr? I scanned the perimeter of the cemetery. Everyone, Saleh said, even the children. And as the Adhan, the call to prayer began, Saleh told me the cemetery was for the martyrs of the Sabra and Shatila massacre in 1982 during the Lebanese Civil War and the other massacres after. That's when I realized that we were standing in a mass grave. Saleh dried his tears as the afternoon call to prayer began. And we walked around the cemetery, careful not to step on any of the graves, especially the littlest ones. From there, Saleh took me to the home of Usloub, a rapper, producer, and one of the members of Katibi Khamse. Saleh wanted to show me the graffiti surrounding his building and to meet Usloub's nephew. When we pulled up to the cluster of apartment buildings in the Dahia neighborhood, I felt for the first time during my time in Beirut at home and in a familiar place. Dahia is the Beirut hub for folks like me with roots in the rural south of Lebanon. Saleh showed me the graffiti that was all over the walls at the base of the building. Okay. Some of the art had been featured in Katibi Khamsi music videos and album covers. One of them, in faded blue spray paint, in large letters said, Al-Auda, which means the return. Al-Auda is a phrase that represents the collective aspiration of the Palestinian people who live outside of Palestine in camps or who are internally displaced within the occupied territories to return home. Saleh was good friends with his nephew, Ahmed. They met in Bilal's workshop back in 2016. Ahmed, who goes by the MC name Diego, lives with his grandmother, Desar, Usloub's mom, and stays in the bedroom where Usloub made all his music before emigrating. Saleh introduced me to Teta and explained what I was doing in Beirut. I told her all about my time in Istanbul and the strong pull to visit Lebanon. And I told her about how I had two kids back home in LA and that my baby girl was back in the hotel with Roro. And we talked like mothers do. Oh. 
يعني بس تركي ولادي حبيت شيء من كل قلبي من جوا بس تركي ولادي يعني ما في طول and Diego told me about how his grandmother is the source of the talent for writing in his family his uncle a rapper another a journalist and his own mother a novelist with 10 books to her name Teta writes books too mostly collections of short stories about women and as we talked she told me how hard it was for her to be a writer and manage her parental duties and we joked who knows if any of it will even be worth it in the end يعني خالو كمان صحفي ماما عندها شيء هلا هلا صار بالضبط 10 كتب صعبة 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 شو اصعب منه بدك نتيجه بعدين شو بعرفك شو بعرف اذا بيطلعوا بيقدروا بس ايه الام ما لها بديل على فكره ما بتضمن قد ما تضحي قدام الولد ما بتضمن انه هو يحفظ وبقول انت عملتي واجبك Salah and I hung out a bit with Diego and he showed us what he's been working on. He spends 12 hours a day delivering water to customers' homes, oftentimes carrying the jugs by hand up five, ten flights of stairs. He told us about how he got into music and growing up with Uslub and Katiba Khamse and exploring beat making and producing. I sat on the edge of his bed and watched him spit verses that were written in his notebook. I knew that this is the only way to have an interview with rappers at home, having tea with their teta and sitting on the edge of the bed listening to what they just made. برت شوي اوكي في راب بس كمان في شيء اسمه بروديوسر في مثلا اذا بدي اجرب اعمل بيت اعمل شيء الكتروني مثلا او شيء هيب هوب على صوته Before leaving I said goodbye to Teta and vowed to come back and interview her She told me that she would put me in one of her stories next time she writes a book. It was late afternoon by the time we left Diego's house. We drove past the port of Beirut and straight into the heart of the city, Martyr Square. It's in the historic downtown sector of Beirut, what used to be a major line of demarcation during the Lebanese Civil War.
Over the past few years, it's been the focal point of anti-government protests and clashes. The toll that the past few years has had on Lebanon was in full view in the daylight. I could see the outline where the sign used to hang above the Hermes store that's since been boarded up. And I thought about Blue Pfeiffer's song, Sintel Eo, which is a remake of Sintel Alfen, but instead of singing about how it's the year 2000 and all of our problems are fixed, she's saying it's 2020 and the country's fucked. The lira's on the floor, we sat in the dark, we got beaten on the streets, and all the while consumed by the coronavirus, morning, noon, and night. We turned into the heart of Martyr Square, and I saw an explosion of color amongst the boarded-up businesses. It was a mural by three of Lebanon's leading graffiti artists, Eps, Spaz, and Exist. It features a white dove hovering over Beirut with the word hope in large letters. After turning a corner into the shopping and commercial quarter of the downtown area, amongst the empty spaces and board-up shops, sat 3D letters that spelled out, I heart Beirut. We stopped and I got off the motorcycle. There was only one person there, an expat, taking a selfie, smiling big, trying to fit his whole head and all the letters in the frame. I took off my helmet and sat next to the heart, wondering what this place was going to look like the next time I came here. And with the sun low in the sky on my last day in Beirut, I thought about what Bilal said about the long way to the bottom. Thank you for listening to episode six, Hope. Special thanks to Saleh, Bilal, Diego, and Teta for opening their hearts to me. I want to give a big thank you to the artists who gave me permission to use their work in this episode. First of all, props to Eps, Spaz, and Exist, the graffiti artists behind the famous mural in downtown Beirut, for giving me permission to use it on my cover art. I also want to thank Lipos, full stage name Beat La Lipos, who provided the electronic track in the beginning, Nuj for providing the track during my conversation with Saleh in the cemetery, and Blue Pfeiffer for opening and closing the episode with her music. You can hear the full songs and more music inspired by the themes and places in this episode in the soundtrack linked in the show notes. It has not escaped me how few women have appeared in this season during my three nights in Beirut, but that doesn't mean that female hip-hop artists don't exist. In fact, Blue Pfeiffer founded her own label, Mafi Budget, 
and Nuja's label, Beirut Records and Entertainment, was also founded and run by a woman, Heba Abu Haidar. Etta, if my conversation with Diego and Teta showed me anything, it's that the invisible hand of a woman is often present in ways that we can't see. Join me next week for the season finale as Saleh and I head to my last two interviews during my time in Beirut with none other than Nuj and Lipos. We found ourselves at a riverbank in the Shouf Mountains and back in Hamra before sprinting for the airport. So don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and let me know where you think I should go next. I hope you guys have been enjoying these longer episodes, so please let me know what you think. Until then, peace and so, so much love to you. <laughs>